Hello, Canada and the rest of the world, and welcome to the Netflix Podcast, the show where we review the movies available to stream on Netflix in Canada. I'm your host, Dylan Clark Moore, and today we're going to be talking about Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made, which is currently available on Netflix in Canada, the US, and the UK. Today's episode of the Netflix Podcast is brought to you in part by UnLondon's 121 Studios, that's London, Ontario's premier digital media hub and co-working space. Visit 121studios.ca for more information. The Netflix Podcast is also a proud member of the Electric Streams Podcast Network. For more insights into streaming media like Netflix, Amazon, and HBO original series, subscribe to Electric Streams Media on your podcast platform of choice. Before we get into things, I'd like to issue a couple of warnings. First, we aren't holding back from any spoilers or plot details from the movie. And second, some of the language may not be suitable for all listeners. There's also something that's going to be coming up about 20 minutes into the conversation that needs a bit of correction and expansion. Since this movie is produced by Drafthouse Films, I end up making reference to the resignation of Devin Faraci, who I'll refer to as a writer for Birth Movies Death. He was actually the editor-in-chief before he resigned amid accusations of sexual misconduct and assault. Uh, Since we recorded this episode, several other prominent men from the world of film have been accused of sexual abuse, harassment, and misconduct. Uh, Harvey Weinstein from the Weinstein Company has been removed from his own company after several women have come forward. Andy Signore, who I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, the co-founder of Screen Junkies, was fired after women whose reports to HR had gone ignored went public. And most applicable to the movie that we're talking about today, Harry Knowles, the founder of Ain't It Cool News, and who appeared in this very documentary representing cool film guys, has also been accused by at least five women. So while it's not the bulk of what we talk about in the episode, it's worth noting just how prevalent this issue has been in movie fandom. Uh, So keep that in the back of your mind when we get to that part of the episode. Now that that's out of the way, let's get into it. I'm here today with the host of two podcasts you should absolutely be listening to if you aren't already, The Whole Shebang and The Willard Price Adventure Podcast. Welcome for the first time to Jenny Ancorn. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you on. I'm very excited too. I've listened to a lot of these and I've been kind of waiting for my turn to, to be asked um, to appear, <laughs> so I am very, very excited to be here. Well, anytime, anytime you want to do this, unless this is a disaster. In well, yeah, case, we don't I'll, know. Uh, it might be terrible. <laughs> yeah. I'll just politely ghost you on Twitter. Exactly, yeah. That's what's this done thing, I think. Okay, so uh, let's get an idea of what kind of things you're into, Jenny. What have you been watching on Netflix recently? Um, well, recently, I think uh, me and anyone else who has a brain in Netflix, um, the new season of BoJack Horseman. Yes. Which yes. I just finished watching this evening. Um, and as usual, it, it worked some pretty rough chuckles, but... <laughs> But overall, um, I, I think it was fantastic. Um, I, I don't think it's quite as good as the last season. It did take a couple of episodes to get going. Um, mm-hmm. 
but I think everything they, they did do with it um, was very interesting. I like that it explored some of the side characters a bit more, and then it was always kind of yep. a relief when Bojack himself appeared again because he's such a great character. I kind of love him. Yeah. Yeah, the pilot episode, or not the pilot, but the, the season premiere, that was the whole Bojackless episode where it seemed like it was building up to him coming back. Yeah. Which seemed a bit off to me that they were treating him like this heroic character you're waiting to come back but we all know that that's not his reality it's not really him is it no and i did i did miss his presence i think you need a little sort of like dash of bojack in each episode (laughs) for me anyway to hold my interest i think it was kind of like the the last season where they did the one that was under under the sea and um, it was completely without any dialogue and um they were maybe going for another kind of themed episode and well i think that episode ended up being the best one of the season i thought it was amazing um that the the bojack less episode didn't really do it for me and i was kind of thinking oh god it's gone off the rails again but oh, okay. but yeah, like I said, the more I watched it, I, I thought it was fantastic. It really picked up and it was another great season. Yeah. Any standout episodes? I talked on the last episode that the uh, the feminism slash gun control slash dementia episode was yeah. was tackling a lot at once, but I thought that it, it balanced it pretty deftly. It was. It's, I really like the way whenever they bring up issues like that, they, they always kind of take in a slightly unexpected direction and they kind of... Um, they sort of dance around an idea instead of just sort of slamming it into your face. Um, and I, I, it was very cleverly done. Yeah, I did like that one. Um, yeah, most of the sort of like dementia stuff. I mean, I've had sort of grandparents with dementia. So that stuff is, um, it's kind of quite difficult to watch. But I think they handled yeah. it really well. And I think it was the, the the flashback episode where we go back into Bojack's mother's past. I can't remember the title of that episode now. But that one, I think for me, was really the standout. Well, the movie that we're here to talk about this episode is from the year 2015 from directors Jeremy Kuhn and Tim Skusen. Skusen, I think. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Uh, My apologies in case he listens to this. Uh, We're going to be talking about Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made, which as I'm looking at it, it's really obnoxious to see it written out with an exclamation point and then a colon. (laughs) I don't like that at all, but... uh, I suppose it's not the biggest problem in the world. Uh, The way that Netflix describes this movie, uh, it has two different ways of doing it. First, when you hover over the title, it says, In 1982, Raiders of the Lost Ark inspired three friends to start making their own movie. Today, they finish it. I think it's not bad. It's fairly succinct. I I mean, yeah. It doesn't make it sound particularly thrilling, but, you know, fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's see if the click description does a better job. So it says, three childhood friends attempt to finish the pet project they've worked on for over 30 years, recreating Raiders of the Lost Ark shot for shot. I think that's it as a, a bit of a better job. Yeah, that has a bit of a better hook. And the genre this belongs to, according to Netflix, is documentaries. And the movie is described as inspiring. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, yeah, I'm not really sure what else I would call it, but there were certainly moments where I felt inspired yeah there were moments where i felt inspired okay i'll give them that one all right so jenny why did you pick this movie in particular um it's actually it's been on my netflix list for a while um i do really like sort of documentaries on netflix in general so and i prefer documentaries about people doing slightly weird things um (laughs) i think this one was um it it was on my recommended list because um there was a couple of other documentaries one um was confessions of a superhero which is about um 
the costumed characters who hang out on Hollywood Boulevard and, and sort of their lives. Um, and it was, it was slightly depressing, slightly camp, which is the kind of thing I like. <laughs> um, and I kind of, I, I looked at this in the description. I thought, yeah, that could maybe sort of fall into that ballpark, sort of, sort of maybe a little nostalgia, a little depression. <laughs> and then um, the other thing that I, when I was kind of thinking, what movie am I going to talk about? I thought I can pick something that I, seen a million times before and I really love um, or I can pick something I haven't seen before but I think there might be interesting things to talk about and that's what I ended up doing because I hadn't actually seen this film before but I thought um, the sort of passion of somebody who's a fan of something and then goes on to decide to make a creative project around it was you know a really interesting thing to talk about especially for someone I think like me and maybe for you as well I don't want to presume but um who makes a podcast you know it's kind of like what makes somebody do something like this yeah absolutely I mean I yeah I I definitely felt that the uh the really this is this is what you want to do with your time that <laughs> um but I mean in your case not I don't want this to come across like I'm criticizing your projects at all but I mean yours are such like they're they they have a, a laser focus on some kind of uh, entertainment property. Um, yeah. Like your your first podcast was taking apart Velvet Goldmine one minute at a time. Yeah. And releasing I think it was 120 episodes tackling that project. So just you know scraping into that movie as deep as you could and you know pulling out some pretty amazing stuff. And then even your your new podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about that one? Yeah, my new podcast, um, Willard Price Adventure. Um, so there's a series of books, and I think um, the author, Willard Price, was originally a Canadian, and he wrote a series of books in the sort of 1940s through about the 1970s um, about two young brothers, Helen Roger Hunt, who explore the world and um, have adventures. And um, they were a series of books that me and my friend Amy Moggleston, who I do the podcast with, we both read at school and kind of got talking about it when we were teenagers because they're so strange and so of their time. They're sort of very outdated and it's this very kind of like square jawed sort of old fashioned sort of pulp adventure style books. Um, but they, they stuck with us because they were so sort of weird and over the top. And um, we thought, well, there must have been other people who've read these books. And I think we found out um, the author David Mitchell mentions them very fondly. <laughs> and we thought, well, if it's good enough for David Mitchell, there has to be someone out here who's going to appreciate these weird <laughs> books as much as we do. Yeah. So yeah, we decided we were going to go through the books and um, we kind of do it like a minute by minute style podcast. Um, we do three chapters for each episode and just kind of, I don't want to say uh, we're not doing this in a reverent way because they are really terrible the books are awful <laughs> so <laughs> we're kind of tearing them apart but at the same time with a little bit of nostalgia and a little bit of love for them so um hmm. yeah it is a very obsessive project and like the three other people who read them as children might get something out of it <laughs> oh that's terrific and that also ties in with the uh with raiders that it's this this adventure story that that captivated these people although maybe and- in your case a bit more ironically <laughs> Yeah, it does. Um, Well, you know, I mean, I thought, well, I could sort of like pick an actual adventure movie, but what we're doing is is slightly dorkier than that. And and I did really love um, the Indiana Jones movies when they came out. And these books, the Willard Price books, are very sort of like Indiana Jones if they were sort of, if you took all the sort of humor and sort of tongue-in-cheekness out of them and just made them sort of very straight um, narratives, that's what these books would be like. So, yeah, I thought it kind of went with the podcast. (laughs) You take... You take Indiana Jones, just extract all the fun, and then yeah, you have exactly. these books. That sounds exactly, dreadful. Exactly, yeah. 
Yeah, with a little with a little more spanking and sort of very unfortunate, outdated um, <laughs> concepts. So I'm not really selling this podcast, am I? Well, I mean, you're not selling the books, that's for sure. <laughs> so there goes your uh, or your sponsorship there. Yeah, well, Willard's long dead, so but maybe his heirs will come and throw a brick through our window in an adventurous fashion. I don't They'll know. <laughs> come and spank you. Exactly. <laughs> and, yeah. It'll be uncomfortable for everybody. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so this movie—you've never seen it before. Um, nope. Overall impressions that you want to start with? For me, I think. I found it quite hard to engage with. And the reason I think that I found it hard to engage with is because I never saw the original film um, that the the kids actually made. Okay, yeah, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the adaptation, I think is what they ended up ultimately calling it. That's right. And um, and apparently it's, you know, it's been a cult. I had actually heard of it. It's been a cult film for years. That's sort of how people found out about it and why they ended up deciding to, to film the end of it. Um, but it was sort of went around film festivals and sort of people knew about it as a thing. Um, but I'd never seen it, so I didn't really have the um, the fondness for the project that I think maybe a lot of people going into watching this documentary would have. Um, it actually made me think of another documentary. I don't know if you've seen it, but one of my favorite films, um, Troll 2, which is a terrible, terrible horror movie. Yeah, yeah. And they made a documentary about it called Best Worst Movie, and it kind of catches up with all the people who are involved in making Troll 2, and it's a really fascinating documentary. And I think I enjoyed it so much because I had that history with um, Troll 2 itself. And maybe if I'd seen this kid's version of Raiders, I would have come into it um, with that same love. But it actually took me a while to sort of to sort of figure out why I should care that they were doing this, and I did eventually get there. But it did take me a while to get going. Mm-hmm. And not that this is actually contributing anything to the conversation, but just because I'm curious, have you seen Lost Soul? I haven't. Okay, so it's the behind the scenes making of uh, Richard Stanley's attempt to make Island of Doctor Moreau that he ended up getting oh. fired from. Oh, wow. That sounds really good. Yeah, it's it's a really fun documentary looking at how this movie got made. And he's very much a uh, like the, the weird eccentric guy from this. <laughs> um, except I he, love that. He's my favorite guy. Um, <laughs> we'll come back to him, but I love that guy. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, he has, and it's this project that wouldn't have existed unless he was involved with it in the first place. Like, he was the one who went and got all the money. And then things started to go wrong when they started signing big actors like Val Kilmer came on and the budget blew up. So then the expectations and all the vision, like all the oversight escalated as well. And then Marlon Brando gets brought on and that just tripled all the problems. And and uh, yeah, it ended up being somebody else ended up taking over the movie and the movie yeah. itself ended up being terrible. And yeah, it's it's. I think you would love that if you've enjoyed this these kinds of movies. And then uh, Yodorovsky's Dune as well. If okay, you like. no, I haven't seen that one either. Okay, um, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm forgetting his first name, but uh, Alejandro Yodorovsky, maybe. Okay, yeah. Um, it's he tried to make Dune, and uh, got all this concept art and had all of this work. Uh, put into it, got all the financing for it, and then ultimately he got dropped from the project as well, just because the scope was going to be outrageous. And he wanted to have it be a, a seven or eight hour theatrical film. Wow. Um, so he ended up getting shit canned from it, and <laughs> David Lynch stepped in, and that's how we got the David Lynch movie. He was just finishing a movie that the studios had already put too much money into. Yeah. Um, so they were like, "Oh, we got to do something." And who wants a weird project? Here, David Lynch finished this off for us. 
that's kind of something else I liked about it. Actually, I, I kind of like films about people who fail slightly at what they're trying to do. So, <laughs> <laughs> and there was a lot of. I think this film did have a lot of pathos. Um, it does kind of. I think for me, it was just the way that the film was edited. Um, I think as someone who who didn't have any sort of stake in the story, I think they kind of start mid-narrative. We start when the guys are trying to raise money to film the last few scenes um, mm-hmm. for the film. Um, sorry, the, the last scene with the plane. But because at this point, I hadn't actually seen any of the footage of them as kids, I didn't really feel like I had any stake in it. I was kind of like, well, what? I don't really care if they managed to make the rest of the film. This film sounds kind of dumb. But, but yeah. as we went through it and we saw them as kids and we saw sort of like their journey, I, then I did actually start to care why that they should finish the movie. So I think, I don't know, maybe it's an editing thing. Maybe if they'd started off with them as kids, I could have, I could have got into it a bit quicker. Yeah, I had a similar struggle with the, the structure that this movie took. And I mean, I'm fine with bouncing around. Um, I don't think that things necessarily have to follow you know, a linear story. But you're right that... You, you, you end up getting about halfway through before you're in any way invested. In fact, um, I mean, the movie starts with John Reese davies narrating it yeah, or kind of giving his his twist on it in a weird scripted slash trying to seem <laughs> like he's speaking just off the cuff sort of way. Um, <laughs> like they're trying to give it this Shakespearean credibility. And then that goes into a very punk sort of opening credits where you see all these flashes of footage of these kids messing around. Yeah. And then like what we what we're seeing at first from these people are not sympathetic behaviors. We're seeing these people who seem like they're willing to waste other people's money. They're willing to go to people's houses and say, "Yeah, you're not going to get your money back, but you know, we're <laughs> earnest, so please give us money." Yeah. And, and then even with uh, Eric at first, Eric, uh, what's his last name? Zala or Zala? Sure. Yes, Eric Zala. Um, you know, you see him seem like he's willing to compromise the financial stability of his household in order yeah. to finish this project. And I was just kind of resentful of him for that. <laughs> I was like, that's really irresponsible. That's, I mean, maybe that's me in my you know breadwinner status just uh <laughs> or role just feeling like he was failing in that but i was i was bothered by how seriously these kids were taking it and yeah. and not even these kids like when they were kids i kind the of adults. i was like oh whatever kids will be kids but watching these grown men spend money and risk people's safety for the sake of pursuing this what seems at first like a silly childhood project just it seemed dumb and i had no sympathy for it no, I, I think I agree. And because they didn't really show any of the project, um, I think if I if I was editing this movie, it was my movie, it would have been nice to sort of start off with some of the joy because there is a lot of joy um, that they experience when they're making it. Um, and they get up to sort of hijinks. They kind of set each other on fire. Um, <laughs> and I don't um, think you start with the fire. That was a... <laughs> That was maybe that was where that sure. was what that's what hooked me in but yeah there's a lot of sort of joy in them making the movie and maybe if it started off with that then I would have cared why they were doing it but you're right they start off sort of showing them sort of begging for money and it's not very sympathetic and um I think you're kind of immediately set against them it's like why are they trying to do this I don't know maybe it's a conscious decision maybe we're sort of like we're supposed to be like the the people that are asking for money we're supposed to think you know why should we care about this project and, right well, they yeah. did. They did ask us collectively for money in their That's Kickstarter, right. which ultimately right. ended up raising fifty-eight thousand dollars wow. from uh, from seven hundred and eighty different people. That's, That's crazy. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. 
I mean, while we're in the the headspace of uh, talking about how weird this whole project is, before we got on board for it, um, yeah, I was I, Eric really gave me the most trouble with his willingness to kind of risk his family's well being. Um, but his arc ended up being the most re- rewarding for me. Yeah. Meeting his wife, his incredibly supportive wife, and having that really tender moment between them when they're driving along. And he says, I went back and, and wanted to listen to it again. Just thanks for wanting me to have this. Yeah. Which is just such a, a sweet and, su- you know, he's so genuinely appreciative of the support yeah. that he's getting. But then I found that his kids seemed like they were supposed to be there to add a a charming sort of flavor to it that like oh we're so proud of our dad for doing this <laughs> yeah and the the naive little boy who had an accent that his parents didn't have but you know he was like i don't understand why steven spielberg needed tens of millions of dollars when my dad it with his my, when my dad <laughs> did it with his allowance i was like what <laughs> I don't know. It that, sounded it, it, a bit like the the kid had been coached. Honestly, I thought the kid had been coached to say that. <laughs> it didn't. Yeah, sound, it was this, I mean, I it was don't this know. Really... I don't have kids. It just didn't sound like a thing a kid would spontaneously say to me. But maybe I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, it seemed like this this forced narrative of this precious kid saying exactly what his daddy needed to hear. Yeah, there was another bit I think where it's just um, Eric's doing a sort of monologue and he's saying when I tuck my boy in at night and he says, oh, daddy, I wish that you could finish making your film. And I thought he doesn't say that. (laughs) It doesn't sound like the kind of thing that this kid would say unprompted. I can imagine Eric saying, don't you wish that daddy would finish his film and build his airplane and everything will go perfectly? And the kid being like, yeah, right, dad, whatever. I mean, kids can sometimes surprise you with the the level of... uh, tenderness that they can have but yeah by and large it's it's not yeah. something that happens that being yeah. said i don't want to be spending most of my podcast calling a 10 year old a liar so I oh no let's do that i think we should go with it okay if you're we out there just go kid, boldly with it based but on you're right the the parentals the, the sort of dynamic with the parents was one of the things that was really interesting in the film um and I think um, as mean, we watched... Uh, Chris's parents? or I think talk- Chris's and Eric's parents, um, because both of the mothers were very supportive um, and sort of very present. And then both of them had the similar experience um, with um, divorces. And um, I think Chris's father um, was quite abusive. Um, well, Chris's stepfather was abusive. Chris's yeah. father, the one who was involved in the movie, was the one who... It was the stepfather who was abusive, yeah. Yeah, the radio host, or the radio guy. Yeah, so it was it was quite interesting, and um, they talked about the sort of need for male role models, um, and they found that in the Raiders movie, um, and maybe that's one of the reasons they went for the project. So I thought that was one of kind of the interesting things, that if it was more towards the beginning, that would give me a hook to why I should care about why they're doing this. Yeah, something that came up in the opening credits, actually, because this was distributed by Alamo or Draft yes. House Films. Yeah. Um, and are you aware of all everything that's going on there? With uh, They're the company behind uh, Birth Movies Death, which recently uh, parted ways with one of their senior writers, I think it was, um, who is a, a very well-respected guy in pop movie criticism. Um, because of allegations of sexual assault. Oh, geez. And he had stepped away from the project, but just in the last week, it was revealed that he had secretly been hired back 
um, wow. and was and was writing copy for them, but without his name attached to it. So when it was when that was found out, then there was another big breakup between them, and there was just a feeling that uh, Alamo Drafthouse in general was not doing. I mean, it, they just they weren't doing a good job of being yeah. respectful of women and creating a space for for women to feel welcome in film criticism. Yeah. Um. So I had that in my head right away from the. Uh, from the opening credits and so it was bothering me that there weren't women in this movie <laughs> yeah no, that's one of the huge things that i definitely write down um there aren't really any women in the movie i mean to be fair there aren't really that many women in the raiders movie um i mean i remember as a kid sort of i i was an indiana jones girl i wasn't i, I mean star wars was all right but the big sort of 80s franchise for me was indiana jones and i remember playing it with the other kids and we'd all have fights over who had to be the woman because no one wanted to be the woman and uh, that's kind of what it was like in the 80s there were no real sort of important women characters in movies yeah. and if there was one you probably didn't want to be a yeah but Although yeah Ma- marion is is Marion's the best an of a plus character yeah marion is pretty feisty i will give her that <laughs> But yeah, that was one of the things that put me off is that the movie started and it's a, it's a bunch of, you know, young men, boys doing boy things. And one of the things that kind of it started me thinking about was sort of boy fandom versus girl fandom. Um, and I think this is the kind of movie that I can imagine people saying, oh, well, you know, girls don't do things like this. Girls aren't interested in this. They don't have the same level of obsession over things, um, which is a concept that I find really irritating because <laughs> I think girls definitely do do things like this. And we do have sort of the same passion for movies, for games, for books, for whatever. But I think maybe the way that girl fandom expresses itself versus boy fandom is different because I think these kids they had access i think it was it was kind of lucky because chris's parents worked at a tv station so they did have access to cameras and editing equipment although but that I was think, the uh, that was the abusive stepfather so it, that's it right it was abusive, a bit of a payoff yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh geez yeah but i think with with boys they're kind of encouraged to pick up those tools and use them and they're sort of encouraged to make projects like this whereas i think for girls um especially women my age i think maybe it's not so true for younger women now we kind of had this sort of fear of tech instilled in us. So if a woman's really enthusiastic about something, she's probably going to go away and she's going to make art and she's going to write and it's going to be more of sort of a personal thing. Whereas if a boy's really interested in something, you know, he's going to be encouraged to sort of pick up a film, and you know, a film camera and make a movie. Um, and so I think for kids of my generation, um, even though women were doing creative things like this, it's not something you really would see or anyone would be interested in, um, which... You know, I find kind of irritating, and um, mm-hmm. and if you think about the things women were doing, sort of like as fans, I mean, you have things like fan fiction, um, which again is sort of like a very sort of private and kind of if 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 a woman had written this, you know, fan fiction that went on for eight years, then would we be sort of watching a documentary about it? Probably not. Well, no, we'd turn it into the best-selling phenomenon 50 shades yes of see that which is fantastic i mean it might be a terrible book but i think maybe women's fandom is starting to come into its own and you know even in something like podcasting there is there's so many great women podcasters but i think they still have a little bit of a tougher time being heard and i think for women my age it's a bit of, of i don't want to say fear of picking up the technology but we still have that idea and still when we were kids that um it's it's a difficult thing for us or a complicated thing or something that we 
aren't capable of understanding, you know, completely erroneously. And I think for younger women, it's just maybe people aren't as keen to hear what we have to say about, you know, our favorite movies or our favorite yeah. games or whatever. So yeah. yeah, it put my hackles up a bit when we went into this, and it's like clearly a sausage fest from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I'm not, I'm not looking to criticize Chris and Eric and the other one, which is probably unfortunately what he's known as through most of his life. Oh, Jason. Jason. Poor Jason. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> um, like I, I understand that, you know, you tend. People generally tend to have peer groups within their own gender and, and things like that. It was just, you know, I had that in the back of my mind that like, yeah, this would be boys doing this. Like if you heard about this, if you heard just some kids are doing this, you yeah. would by default assume that it was it was boys who were doing it. And that's where when they started to kind of self-psychologize and start talking and like every kid that they talked to or every, I guess at that point an adult, but everybody was talking about, yeah, we had just gone through, you know, my parents had just gone through a divorce. All three of the uh, the main creative drives behind the movie, they were all products of divorce, right? Yeah. Um, and then even the side characters, they were like, yep, it was just, you know, this is what we did. And so it, for a little while at least, and, you know, this is something that the movie doesn't really do is spend more than five minutes on any given idea. But for <laughs> yeah. those few minutes, it became clear that it was like, well, yeah, like these boys would be doing this for the the reason that you pointed out that they were trying to either go into a fantasy world or in the absence of some kind of father figure or a strong male figure they were gravitating toward a fictional one which i think is such a sort of like spielbergian sort of george lucas narrative isn't it it's like the parents it's like et the the mom's separated from the dad um the parents are off working they're kind of like in their own adult world and then the kids um, have their own sort of fantasy world. I mean, if you look at something like The Goonies, where they have um, Amy Muggleston, who I did the podcast with, just wrote, wrote a really good article on this. And The Goonies, they call it, this is our time. So they're underground having the adventure, and this is the kids' time. And they get to kind of forget the adult world a bit. They can forget about the divorces and the abusive stepdad, and they just get something that's, you know, for them. Mm-hmm. And the the one guy in this movie, he even says, we are The Goonies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, I, I I became a bit more forgiving, and I kind of let the movie off the hook for that. Not that that's the trouble with I don't know the patriarchy. I guess it's just that you know it's not something that the movie itself was doing wrong. It was just knowing that this movie would not exist if not for boys. Yeah. Um, and then even at the end, when everybody was going rah rah about the movie, like all the figures from. Uh, movie dumb cine anyway when uh like eli roth and harry knowles and they were all talking mm-hmm. about how amazing it was to see this movie and uh to to discover it and they were talking to people having these big reactions you know out of all these people who represent cool filmness there was one woman who was part of yeah. that and it's just and yeah people, i mean like yeah. f- film criticism and film fandom is just not as friendly to women as it should be yeah, and there are many women who are interested in, in this kind of thing and are probably, you know, and are doing this kind of thing, but we're just not hearing about it for, I'm not going to say, I was going to say for whatever reason, but we know what the reason is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I was, um, unsurprisingly, my favorite movie was Labyrinth, and I kind of remember sort of sitting down, and I think I my thing was I was, I was making a comic book version, so I was like 
writing it all out and I was drawing the pictures to go with it and you know if I'd had a camera um, I probably would have made some hideously embarrassing project but because because I was a girl even though my parents tried to encourage you know all of us to to take an interest in what we wanted to it just wasn't really expected that this was a skill you'd learn or something you'd be interested in and and hopefully that's getting a little better for women hopefully at least even if they aren't getting the attention the tools are being put into their hands and um and they they can go out and do this kind of thing now a little more freely than they used to yeah that is interesting about for girls fandom being more of a private thing you know playing dress up and not having it leave your bedroom yeah, or just with, or, to, or to write stories and to keep them, you know, closed up in a journal, as opposed to putting it on tape, having the bravery or gall, whichever way you want to look at it, of actually sending it to Steven Spielberg and just well, I don't just want the to total get, yeah. the total lack of fear. I don't want to get into a thing about sort of male entitlement, but <laughs> I think boys are kind of taught that they're interesting and people will be interested in what they do, and they have their role models Indiana Jones and maybe girls in the 80s were told that you know they stay in the background and their role is to support Indiana Jones um, yeah and occasionally slap him in the face if he's being <laughs> too terrible but um yeah, yeah I don't think that you know I, girls are encouraged in the same way boys are that you know whatever they want to do they should be doing um yeah 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 I mean that's yeah that's something that I struggle with as a <laughs> as a male podcaster just is my voice really contributing anything to this conversation or do i just feel like i have the right to talk into a microphone i think everyone has the right to talk into a microphone but we should just um uh, be aware that the playing field's not a level one necessarily mm-hmm. yeah do you want to spend a little bit of time talking about each of the guys and how the movie treats them yes I, I mean, we've we spent a bit of time on eric already Eric um, with his, his nerdy t-shirts and uh, <laughs> and he kind of started off he started off making comics um, which I could I think I felt a bit of warmth towards him it showed some of his hand-drawn comics that he'd made when he was a kid because that was something I liked to do yeah I mean I've talked I've talked about Eric's family dynamic I mean that's just something that I identify with I found yeah, his it, um his job situation was quite interesting wasn't it it was it was interesting and difficult and yeah, it was it was challenging, and it also said a lot about the other people in his life, how they were treating him about it. Yeah. Um, like like as I've mentioned, his wife was incredibly supportive. I mean, she seemed like she had to harness him in a bit sometimes. Like she wanted to make it clear that we are not financing this thing. We cannot put ourselves into that much of a hole for the sake of finishing this project. Yeah. But if we can do it responsibly, let's do it. But even when it came to him being at risk of losing his job, she seemed to be saying, like, listen, they they should, she seemed to have the moral stance that they should let you do this. This is clearly important to you. Your business should re- understand that. And yeah. if they don't, then she seemed ready to make it work if he didn't have a job, which was... Which I kind of loved. I thought that was kind of great because, ugh, I mean, I don't know... I haven't I haven't stalked you online or anything. I haven't delved into your private life, so I don't know. Like I know you do this, and I I don't know like what your your main gig is. Oh, okay, yeah, don't. But I I have a day that. job, yeah. and I write, and I make podcasts, and it's it's really difficult if you do have you know a creative passion to find time to do it when you're an adult. And I think that one of the things the film sort of showed me is that they as adults they still had that same passion that they did when they were kids. They just didn't mm-hmm. have any time. They didn't have time to do it. They had all these other demands on their time. And um, 
And I think if you want to do something like this, like the sort of thing that maybe we do, you, you kind of do have to be prepared to take some risks and, and think what, where your priorities lie. And I think for me, I can really appreciate someone who says, well, you know what, maybe I will lose my day job, but I'm not going to like this project, which I've worked on for my entire life, just die a death because some dickhead won't give me a day off work, which was kind of yeah. what it came down to in the end. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe it's just being in a, I, I don't know exactly what his job was, but I, I got the feeling that he it's was like still Video with, game development, I think. Yeah. I think he said he was working for a AAA company at that point, or at yeah. least he had in the past. Like, and yeah. I understand that there's, you know, a lot of the times a tremendous amount of pressure uh, for people to put in the time, however much time that is. But I also, I don't know, I've worked in fairly corporate environments most of my life. So I also, and often in management. So, you know, I, I also understand the frustration from the company side that like, like why, how do you not realize that this, like we hired you to do a job and you're not fulfilling <laughs> the terms of that job. So yeah. I was uh, I was a bit squeamish about it because I didn't know how to feel. I wanted to cheer for him, but I also... At times, thought that his project was stupid, but he also yeah. recognized that sometimes the project was stupid. <laughs> and then for this thing that they had made, you know, as as on the cheap as they could, to decide to just go completely all out, do it as high budget as they possibly could for this last section. Yeah, and to seemingly like, like they they got greedy, really. <laughs> I mean, I understand that they they now had access to the resources to do it properly and do the way that they always wanted. So it was this balancing act for me as to whether or not I was even on board for them doing this in the first place and what they were willing to risk to do it. Yeah, uh, well, it's and I think someone says I think one of the guys that they as adults hired to sort of help with this final scene, they kind of says, well, what's Eric hoping to get from this? Because I think the implication was Eric was hopeful that he would eventually get a job in movies and he wanted to do producing full time and his passion is in film and it's not in whatever he was doing. And this guy was saying, well, you know, um, he's going to go to directors and they're going to say, what's your last project? And he's going to say, well, it was this film I started making when I was eight and it was a shot for shot remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And they're going to say, what have you done that's original? And he's not going to be, able, he's going to say nothing. Oh, and that was, was yeah, that was Jason. It that was, was Jason. Jason. Oh, Jason. Jason, I love Jason. He's so bitchy. Although, <laughs> I, I might have been mistaken, but I think that that was Jason actually talking about himself and why he didn't, why that was like his justification for why he didn't want to be involved in the project. Okay. I, I yeah. might have misheard it, but I, I felt like that. I thought he was talking about Eric, but I could be wrong. But... Oh, okay. I thought that was more about him protecting his own wounded pride for not being asked <laughs> to be involved. But but we can get to Jason soon. I'll save him for last since I know he's yeah yeah he is my favorite. I I just um. I felt sorry for Eric. He did seem I was on Eric's side. I think as someone who has also worked corporate jobs and has got to the point where they've decided they're never doing that again. Um, I I I hate the whole attitude that your your work owns you and you owe them something. And oh god, I sound like such an old hippie at the moment. <laughs> but I I kind of think you have to put your passion first and you have to decide what's worthy in your life. And I don't know. I think it's a bit sad if you finally decide that what's most worthwhile is your day job. But maybe some people have day jobs they love. Um, I've never had one personally and I've done some fun day jobs <laughs> but I, mm -hmm. I've never that's never been my passion and and so I did feel really sorry for Eric and um, and I kind of hope that he does get an amazing producer's job off the back of this yeah well, he did end up I mean at the right before the credits roll they let you know that Eric ended up quitting his job to go and work with Chris in some kind of production capacity so yeah. it does it does tag <laughs> you with that happy-ish ending 
I but, feel that it's going to be a Bojack ending, so I think yeah. they're going to like cut to them sitting on the side of the highway or something. Yeah, I don't want to see the sequel to this movie, that's for sure. No. <laughs> um, but I mean, like I, I, I'd mentioned that with Eric and the way people react to Eric's job situation, you see a lot about the characters themselves. And this is, I think, a good transition into Chris. Yeah. In that Chris is just not considering the consequences of Eric's situation at all. He's just rolling his eyes at Yeah, the he fact kind of talks about his... the man, doesn't he? He gets into one of yeah, those, the man's type he's, he's so disappointed in Eric for selling out and how like, yeah, of course you should quit this job. Blah. And I'm like, <laughs> like, dude, like you're not thinking about this man's future at all. You're not thinking about his well-being. And maybe there's something pure in that, but I felt that that was more Chris getting himself over and less worrying about his friend's spiritual well-being yeah he see he seems the kind of i don't know he seems a very sort of like jump and then ask questions later type of person so i think that's yeah. like, maybe it's not him being sort of like um thoughtless so much as he genuinely believes that it's the best thing that eric could do which um as someone who's just kind of put in a passionate defense for eric sort of like <laughs> quitting his job and continuing to make this movie I, I can kind of see where chris is coming from but yeah chris is such an interesting character and i think um i, I think it's towards the end of the movie because like i said the pacing in the movie is so strange um i think it's um eric's um, father who says that eric's always been a lifeline for chris and you, you do get the sense that eric is like the stable figure in chris's life um who he kind of like bounces around and it was actually chris's idea originally he he was the one who sort of like had this indiana jones comic he was reading on the bus and then eric noticed and they became friends and started making the movie because of chris yeah and that was a, a great dynamic for them to have that you have the person who's really the ideas guy and then the other guy who knows how to get things done you've got the practicality and the passion working together although yeah. i don't know you got the impression that eric could have finished the job with a new indiana jones <laughs> you don't get the impression <laughs> that chris could have finished that movie with a new director no because eric is sort of like the stable one isn't he and he he does seem to be very sort of methodical but i don't know maybe you need someone with the the passion of a chris to to keep to keep things going i mean uh, chris just had such an interesting life and he's kind of a dick <laughs> through a lot of it um yeah <laughs> i th i think they what for me was the hook of the movie of like i was making like a, a sort of like if i was going to pitch this movie the hook would be you know like some kids they try and make their their favorite movie together and then one of them sleeps with the other one's girlfriend and they don't speak for you know 10 years and for me that's where the drama lies because I, I think um what sort of broke them apart was you know exactly that eric had this girl he was interested in and chris kind of made a move on her and um classic chris <laughs> it does yeah. seem a, as we watch the movie it does seem a very sort of chris sort of self-destructive thing. <laughs> i did appreciate chris's candor in speaking about how he didn't like how destructive it was and how he did seem to be trying to sabotage the friendship however yeah. unconsciously like he just wanted to prove that he could do it because he had some kind of resentment towards eric but then even as an adult he's still being shitty about it like he said i didn't even find her attractive and i'm like dude like you don't need <laughs> i'm sitting here looking at you I, you don't need to prove to me that at 18 the girl that you hooked up with wasn't hot like, that's, <laughs> that does not need to be your priority right now like he's yeah. still chris even if he's got a day job now yeah he uh and I think Chris reminded me of every douchey guy I went out with as a teenager. <laughs> I think I had a kind of love-hate relationship with Chris because, well, I kind of, 
admired his sort of slacker punk aesthetic at the same time I was like yeah I can see how he'd be a complete sort of handful to <laughs> to actually spend any time with and I, I think um there's a there's shot sort of later on in the movie when he met his um his partner who again seems to be kind of a stabilizing influence in his life he was in a band where he looks really really like Corey Feldman yes <laughs> he really did <laughs> which kind of but he can actually sing unlike Corey Feldman <laughs> I thought that was a nice bit of synchronicity that they're doing this mm-hmm. 80 style kids movie. <laughs> I mean, his story takes a turn that you do not see coming. I mean, like you're told that hey, he's got a bit of a rough life, and when we meet him, he seems put together, and then his character kind of devolves as we go. Yeah. And then he's just like, yeah. So then I got you know I went home with a stripper and got addicted to meth, and we're like, whoa, <laughs> like what? This is this is the turn. Yeah, and it's kind of, you think they would have made a bit more of a drama of that. It is kind of sort of, towards the end of the movie, it's just like tossed off. So here's what I've been doing since. (laughs) And it is literally a few throwaway sentences. Then we get him as Corey Feldman, and then we're back to sort of making the movie again. It was just very strangely edited um, that way. Yeah, it seemed like there were things that they didn't want to dwell on. Like maybe the guys had final cut over what was going to be in the documentary. Like maybe Chris didn't want to talk too much about... Uh, his addictions and his problems and his redemption. Yeah, but it's such he, an interesting arc. It's way more interesting than some guys making Indiana Jones, really. Yeah, and even the story of the guys all falling apart and breaking up and not really wanting anything to do with each other, like that story really got dropped. Um, like yeah. They seemed like they wanted to push to the redemption as quickly as possible. And then, I mean, Jason just gets left hung out to dry. Like you don't even really find out what happened between them, and they seem real wishy-washy about working with him again, and that's... Yeah, it's very glossy. It's kind of interesting reading between the lines, because it does seem like there's so much scandal going on behind the scenes, but for some reason they don't actually want to tell us any of it. They'd rather sort of talk about how they laboriously build this giant wooden plane than, <laughs> than actually tell us any of the, the juicy details that they hint at, which is slightly disappointing. Which, I mean, I understand. Like Everybody wants to control their own narrative, and they don't want to... But at least make it an interesting narrative. I mean, geez, I'd make up stupid facts about myself to make me sound more interesting. <laughs> but, but yeah, they didn't really, they seemed like they, there was that sort of like monofocus, wasn't there? I mean, I guess if you're going to spend like your entire sort of childhood and early teens making some a project like this, maybe you do have to be that monofocus that you sort of lose sight of maybe what is more interesting. And, yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's also there's what you find interesting, and then there's what other people find interesting. That's true. Right, and scandal can really overtake that. Like Come I on, had, Faye, like sleeping with a stripper and taking meth is more interesting than a big fake plane for anybody. Oh, I I agree, <laughs> and you know you can really try to put everything into something, but if the world decides that the most salacious thing about you is more interesting, yeah, it's it's really frustrating and defeating to try and stop that flow so i mean you just you soldier on with what you really want to be doing no i can see that it's it's true yeah i I think they they there was this assumption going into i think i've said this right there's an assumption going into the film that you're going to be really invested in the project as much as these you know eric and chris are and I think for me, like, I wasn't really... The the part which really hooked me in um, is um, when they were talking about sort of how they um, improvised to make their original film. And um, in the original film, there's a monkey, and they had had Chris's dog in place of the monkey. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought that was so brilliant and so fantastic. I was like, okay, yeah, I'm totally on board with this now. I do care about this project now just because of that. I thought that was great. Yeah, I found that, like you said, the the project itself, I didn't really care about until I saw 
how the people at the film festival were talking about and how exciting it was for them to see yeah, and to really understand what this was when, I mean, without actually sitting there and watching the movie, which I don't think would be as enjoyable as uh, as the, the people in the movie make it sound or the people in this documentary make it sound. Maybe it's the surprise of it because they kind of like, you know, they went into it blind. They didn't know they were going to be seeing it. And I can imagine like if you were just like, you know, watch this. As, you know, I think that's the thing that happens when we're teenagers. We have the friend who has like dodgy movies that... Right. I, I don't know if this happens in Canada, but in the UK, there was used to, if you went to the pub, there'd always be like a weird guy selling, you know, videos out of a duffel bag. <laughs> <laughs> and you wouldn't really be sure what you were getting, but there was always like, um, you'd put it on and it would be something like this. It would be Raiders of the Lost Ark made with kids. So um, I think, yeah, if you were discovering it that way and it was like this little hidden gem that you found, then I could see that it would be really sort of charming and interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, I really yeah. wish that I had been there for that screening and I'd been able to to see this movie in that way. I think that much in the same way that I can't really enjoy Back to the Future the way that people used to, I don't feel much of a thrill watching Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like It just doesn't really do it for me. But uh-huh. I think this movie made me more of an Indiana Jones fan to kind of see it through their eyes and really kind of get what Indiana Jones represents for people. Yeah. So did you see Indiana Jones when you were a kid or did you see it when you were older? Um, I don't really remember. I think I was probably in my teens when I yeah, saw see, it. Yeah, see that's too late. Time. That's too late. I think yeah. <laughs> I think maybe you do need to see it as a kid because obviously I'm a little older than you, so I do remember going to see I think it was Last Crusade when it first came out at the cinema and right. I'd seen the other ones on TV and maybe you do need to see it when you're eight to sort of really <laughs> really get into it. But... To really get the hooks in, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we've been holding him off. Um, and speaking of, of the dramas and the falling outs and the or fallings out or whatever the right way to say that is. Um, so Jason, Jason Lamb, you said he's your favorite. Do you want to speak speak to why that is? Well, first of all, he looks like he'd be really good fun to ha- hang out with. So Jason, is um, he did the, the camera for the original movie and he did all the special effects. Um, and he's just this weird sort of, strange kooky guy with an affinity for sort of leopard print and the grateful dead which you know immediately is the kind of person yeah i want i want to get to know you better and i think um they show a lot of (laughs) of sort of home movie shots of him as a kid doing all these crazy special effects i think he pretends to like stick his face to the burner of the stove then he sort of turns around to the camera and his face is all blackened which is totally the kind of thing i would have done as a child as well and found really funny and yeah, he, he did all the special, really ingenious special effects for, for the Raiders film. And I was just kind of a bit in awe that a, a kid would sort of think of all these things. Um, and he's the kind of guy who sort of like talks very quickly. And his, he's in this like strange, it's his house and it's a strange house with this weird sort of artwork and, and various, you know, sort of weird sculptures in the background. And he's just somebody I would like to sit down with and, and like to get to know him better because I found him really interesting and also slightly sarcastic he didn't have like the same sort of reverence for the project that eric and chris did so i think he gave us a slightly different angle on it and it, yeah i think you needed he was like the bojack horseman injection into <laughs> into the equation yeah i i guess i have a bit of a different relationship with him <laughs> in that i felt like there was a an, an undertone of uh maybe scabbed over bitterness that yeah. he was approaching it with. <laughs> like he he was left out of the project as soon as they could. Like I got the feeling that they just kind of got exhausted with him. Yeah. 
and maybe it was just keeping up with his eccentricities or maybe it was uh, the fact that I mean every time something goes wrong whether it was uh, uh, Eric being set on fire or <laughs> the incident with the mask like everything every time something goes catastrophically wrong <laughs> it's something that Jason just kind of oh shucks his way about it when like there were life-threatening situations that he created that he didn't seem to be taking very seriously that's everything i found charming about him i think <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's exactly the, the mask incident was was really good i think um they they used plaster to make a mold of eric's face he was playing um was it Belloc when his face melts so they wanted to make a mask of it and so Jason he gets um the wrong kind of plaster he doesn't get a medical grade plaster and it gets really hot and um they can't get it off Eric's face and they're kind of ripping off his skin and his eyebrows and Jason's like oh well it wasn't really that big a deal and they do use that kind of plaster occasionally and maybe his face was on fire but he'd lived and it was fine and yeah <laughs> yeah I, I, I mean, he was funny he, he's a funny character yeah he just seemed more I don't know I <laughs> Maybe I like, I kind of like, kids, I like but... a bit of bitterness and recklessness in people, so maybe that's why I I liked him so much. Yeah, it was just it was horrifying for me thinking of children doing this <laughs> and having like my oldest be maybe like six years away from being the age that these kids started doing this at. Yeah. So that just uh and like seeing the kids driving around like the the one kid who almost like got run over by the jeep like he was about <laughs> to have his his groin crushed by the wheels of a moving oh, Chris, vehicle. Yeah. Like, that all made me deeply uncomfortable. <laughs> Maybe it's just because I don't have kids, and so I'm still sort of in the mindset of like, it, you know, I remember all the stupid things I did as a kid um, and almost died um, very fondly. So. Maybe yeah, it's there was, I don't... <laughs> yeah, there was this kind of like naive charm to it, but I don't know. I felt like he wasn't taking it as seriously as he should have. Oh, um, I, I did kind of like that about him. Yeah, they had the Jeep, didn't they? And um, they borrowed the Jeep off someone's brother and it didn't have any... didn't, didn't have actually any have an engine or a brake. So yeah, they're just driving along the road and there's no real way to stop it. And they have Chris reenacting the scene when Indy's clinging to the front of the Jeep. And um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, I think one of the mothers actually said um, when they they kind of when the film got screened when they were older and it started being discussed it was on a bunch of tv shows and one of the mothers said that somebody commented this looks like bad parenting to me yeah. i don't know i kind of feel like it's it's kind of good parenting it's like your kids have this passion and you're sort of like okay well we're going to give you a movie camera and we're going to sort of like we're going to let you use the studio to edit and we're going to send you out and you're going to create something and i, I don't know to me that seems yeah. like good parenting yeah, I think that I mean that that mother was trying to let us know that she genuinely felt like she was doing her best, and they got the adult supervisor involved who, <laughs> who as put it turned more out, fire was, and everything. <laughs> <laughs> just wanted to see children burn. I guess I like I liked him as well. He was um, they're recreating the scene in the bar when it's all on fire, and he's like telling the kids to put more fire. It's like put some more fire there. No, that's not on fire enough. <laughs> I thought that was wonderful. <laughs> Well, and he seemed, he just, he was one of my favorite interviews because he didn't care. He, like, he seemed confused that anybody was still talking about this stupid yeah. thing. And he was like, I just didn't have anything better to do. <laughs> like, I don't have a unique perspective on this. <laughs> yeah, he was one of the good interviews. Yeah, it was, it was kind of interesting seeing the people that they chose. And some of them were still obviously treated the project with, you know, this reverence and nostalgia. And a lot of them just seemed genuinely confused as to why, you know, Chris and Eric still cared about this. Yeah. Yeah, it seemed like some of the kids back in Mississippi were looking back at this as like this is the most interesting thing I will ever do in my life. So let's 
you know, yeah, let's bring the gang back together. Let's let's do it. Yeah, and that um, was one of the sort of heartwarming moments. Yeah. <laughs> but but Jason is the outlier there, and that's that's where the bitterness got a bit squirmy again too, because you have that scene where Chris and Eric they're trying to figure out a way to save money, and they fire their DP. Yeah. Or the DP ends up leaving. Um, yeah, they can't so they pay have, him. I think. Yeah. So he, yeah. He leaves, so yeah. so they're like, well, we either need more money, or we need to get Jason back involved, <laughs> and they pass this knowing look back and forth yeah. just saying like, just they know what that means and so they find a way to come up with the money like I feel so <laughs> bad for Jason in that moment that these men would rather go deeper into personal debt <laughs> than to work on a creative project with you and then they invite wow. him seemingly I mean for us we know that it's as a courtesy and then Jason seems confused like why would I even be here I'm not here in a professional capacity so like why are you wasting my time but they yeah. feel like they're throwing him a bone I think I just felt bad for Jason I it seemed like you know they were they had their dynamic they're kind of like you know sort of sort of straight sensible Eric and crazy Chris and that was their duo and then it's like, I don't know might, like Jason did seem to be a little better maybe he kind of implied that maybe he'd been used a bit because he clearly was like really great at doing these effects especially for someone his age and yeah he was a little sort of bitter that he got pushed out of things and I think there was a bit um, when they were promoting um, when they were talking about the film when they were younger because it was on local television and stuff and sort of Chris kind of implied that he was responsible for some of the effects um, when really, you know, it was Jason's work and you could sense that old sort of bitterness there. So I, I, I did feel a bit sorry for Jason, yeah. Um, oh, I did absolutely, especially when they were kids, that people seemed, I wasn't sure if that was coming from uh, from Chris and Eric, that they felt like they were this duo who brought Jason along and who had this guy who was doing stuff for them as opposed to Jason, who saw them as a trio who were doing all of this together. Yeah. Like, it was this uneven dynamic right from the beginning that Jason did not realize was there <laughs> until yeah. later on in when the resentment started to build up. Yeah, and I think no one likes to be that... I mean, he did seem... His personality, he's sort of, like, clearly sort of brilliant, um, but sometimes people who are sort of quirky and brilliant can be a little off-putting to, to certain types of people, so... And and I think if you are that sort of lonely, sort of brilliant, creative kid, um, and you find people who you think are friends, and then you maybe you realize they weren't quite, as, you know, the friendship wasn't an even one. It can be really, you know, it can hurt. And that those, you know, that hurt can carry over to adulthood. And <laughs> it, I, that's kind of like one of the things I did like about this movie was seeing you got to see them as kids, and and then you do see all these sort of resentments and sort of like strange little personality quirks carried over into an adulthood so that was kind of interesting too all right so do you feel we've given jason his uh his due diligence his his fair yeah i think we have um he did wear an amazing leopard print jacket to the premiere of the film and i think we should point it out just because it was resplendent and fantastic so yeah other than Mm -hmm. that we've given him his due okay so the uh the other really dynamic part and the fact that a documentary had a climax was pretty interesting yeah, um, is the uh, when they finally get around to shooting the final scene. Eric has gotten the extra time off work. The money is running out. The stunt coordinator has been telling us all along that this is a really stupid idea. <laughs> Some foreshadowing there, yeah. Um, they even show a prayer uh, that he that the stunt coordinator offers before they're filming <laughs> this big explosive stunt. Everybody's stressed out, 
And uh, did you see this coming? Did you have any expectation that something was going to go horribly wrong? Or I were you expecting this to all like wrap up beautifully? I was kind of expecting it to, to wrap up beautifully. And, you know, there was more foreshadowing because I remember sort of when Jason was talking about why they didn't want him in is because he wanted to do things differently. And he mentioned that, oh, we'd use a model plane. Why would we use a giant plane? That would be really dangerous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I did not see this coming at all. I think I watched this for the first time. I was um, I was actually at work because there's a lot of downtime in my day job. Um and I just, I remember um, the plane scene and just saying, holy shit, out loud, and then hoping no one had heard me. Yeah, I was not expecting it. It was shocking. And it, it I mean, I didn't know whether the guy was okay or not. I didn't know if I just watched a man actually die, like this yeah. turned into some kind of snuff film. I know. I was thinking, well, they probably wouldn't show it if he was dead, but... <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, I, I was expecting this glorious Mythbusters-style explosion filmed from multiple angles. and But yeah, the stunt coordinator, like, there's an explosion, like, feet away from him. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, they, uh, it's difficult to yeah, watch. Yeah, they have all the same setup, and it's like, they have the first explosion that goes off fine, and then the second one just doesn't go off, right? So he sort of goes back to to sort of see what went wrong and the, the documentary camera is actually standing with him and he's just kind of saying oh well I, I don't understand that yeah and then as he's talking the second well, as he's, not even as he's talking as he's planning on throwing a bucket of like <laughs> gasoline into it to get a big explosive fireball. well he's a professional so that's clearly what you do <laughs> Uh, anyway, sorry, I, I interrupted. No, no, that's, uh, yeah, so yeah, as, as he's kind of like, you know, well, what, what are we going to do about it? Yeah, the, the, the second huge explosion detonates and yeah, we kind of see him flying through the air and rolling across the earth. It's very dramatic. It's very sort of movie-like and um, yeah, and you're not really sure if he's dead because he's just laying out on the ground. And then you see, I mean, the I mean, Eric makes a big uh, happy joke about it afterwards, being like, oh, that guy, you know, he's always a professional. <laughs> but his first thought is, Eric, did you get the shot? And that was <laughs> disturbing to me that, I mean, th- that was one of the times that I, I pinged back over to thinking that this whole thing was really stupid and that, <laughs> and that like, this, this project shouldn't, like, you were putting kids in danger and now there's this professional who seemed uncomfortable with this stunt the whole time and yeah. he's the one who's paying the price like there are almost victims to this project that yeah. are in no way involved in the decision making in the first place yeah and it makes you know, me if a eric bit wants suspicious. to set himself on fire yeah. then fine but i mean like if your kids are gonna not have a home or if this stunt coordinator is not gonna have a face because well, of this yeah. project it yeah. makes me it makes me angry <laughs> Yeah, and the kids were there watching as well. So, like, he's possibly he's just exposed to his children to watching, you know, the stunt guy get blown up. <laughs> yeah, his son is devastated. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. I don't know. It kind of like that the whole thing of yeah, when the, the stunt coordinator comes around and he's just saying, "Oh, you know, did we get the shot? Did we get the shot?" It kind of makes you like, on one hand, you could think, well, you know, he feels bad as a professional because he he screwed up the explosion, and you know, then he knows that they've only got one shot of this and it's the last day of filming. So, you know, maybe it's his professionalism speaking. But on the other hand, is Eric such, you know, is Eric such a sort of hard ass that he's genuinely worried that Eric's going to be mad with him because he screwed it up? I don't know. Yeah. I just really didn't like Eric very much. Um, so <laughs> I think I was... I don't, no, that's not fair. I didn't dislike Eric. I just found him the least um, warm, I guess, the least interesting out of out of all of them. I, I Yeah. <laughs> that's probably why i relate to him so much i'm often the least interesting person in the room <laughs> oh i'm sure that's not true <laughs> have you ever blown anyone up though 
I have not. Oh, well, so I you're a step not. behind Eric now. You've got to try harder. You're trying to blow up at least three people before tomorrow. Okay. Yeah, I've but, got my homework assignment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was a, it was a great ending for the, the film. It, I mean, it was. It's just like after going through that swing of feeling negatively about the project yeah i only just got back on board during the final credits when they show you the sequence back or uh, side by side yeah with the original footage and they did an incredible job of replicating it like oh, they, they did. did what they set out to do yeah it's actually quite confusing when you watch them side by side because you can't always tell which is the real one and which is um, which is Eric's version, Eric and Chris's yeah, version. Yeah, and some, sometimes the remake looks better. I yeah. mean, it's made 40 years later. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Or, uh, yeah, 35? Yeah. Anyway, it's yeah. made much later with newer technology, so it, and sometimes it looks cleaner. And I, in a way, I kind of thought, well, I don't know, maybe I wanted them to continue doing it in their Gonzo style, because I imagine, like, when you do put it alongside the, the footage they shot as kids, it must be quite jarring to suddenly go into this amazingly produced, you know, expensive scene. But I and... think that that's also part of the experience of watching it, right? Because they, they filmed it all out of sequence, and they mm. got older and younger as you bounce around. Like, it's... It's to watch the actual movie, like the remake movie, is not to watch a movie. Like you're not watching yeah. it for narrative purposes. You're watching it to appreciate the fanaticism of these kids. So then to have this exciting chase with grown men, like there, I imagine that when they film it now, they probably have a little introduction talking about it or something. Yeah. And I'd actually um, really love to see it because I tried to find it online and I found some bits of it. I've watched bits of it, but I haven't actually watched the whole thing through. But now I, you know, I guess if this film did, did anything, it's probably maybe what it was intended to do, <laughs> which was to make me actually want to find this now and watch it. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. And, <laughs> you sound I mean, really it, enthusiastic about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, at the end of the day, like none of this matters, like what you and I think of it. And I don't mean to be um, to be negative about it, but I mean at the end of the day, this all that matters in terms of this project is that Chris and Eric are happy with it, and that they did the thing that they set out to do, and anything else is just tangential to that. Yeah, okay, but I'm going to put another sort of like um, another downer ending on it. It's like, what do you do? Oh, do what do you do once you finish something like this? So like you finish like your life's work and it's over. That has to be kind of depressing. Well, yeah, but on the other side of it, I, I mean, Eric was talking about, Eric and his wife were very melodramatically talking about the well-being of his soul. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> when they were deciding whether or not he should ask for the time off and what he should do if he can't get it. And she was kind of coaching him to say, you know, if you if it comes down to it and you have to go back to that job every day, what's that going to do to you? Mm -hmm. And so... I find that when it comes to creative people or people who like to call themselves creative, one of the easiest things in the world to do is to not do the thing that you want to do. Oh, yeah. And that way you get to sit back, you get to be, I don't want to say a victim because, I mean, like people have legitimate circumstances that get in the way of producing art. Yeah. But it's easy to sit back and to say, well, you know, because of my job, because of my kids, because of my circumstances, I never got to make that album. I yeah. never got to record that podcast. It's so easy to find reasons not to do it yeah. and to tell yourself that you would have been brilliant at it yeah. rather than facing it, finding out, and then possibly even finishing it and then going into this unknown. Because that unknown is scary, but I uh -huh. think it's so much more admirable to finish what you're doing 
and then try again or start something anew. So you've come around to the idea that Eric should totally jeopardize his job. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you have. <laughs> I, uh, if you I you've come over to the dark side during the course of this podcast, I think. Oh, I'm writing up my letter of resignation right now. I'm going <laughs> to podcast full time to get more white voices of men into the podcast. Yeah, that's what we need. That's what we all need. Yes. Um, yeah, I don't know if I've talked myself into that specifically, just because I, I don't, yeah, I wasn't there. I don't have that passion in me for that particular project, so it's easy for me to sit back and judge their choices. But I understand the motivation and the impetus and to have done it for as long as they did and to have an incomplete part of that yeah i mean no it is i agree i I definitely agree with you it is is great that they finished and i think it would be the kind of thing you'd regret not doing always if you didn't finish it yeah i think it's just it it mars it for me a bit that there were consequences for people who were not directly involved in the project that uh that nearly came to fruition yeah but that's kind of another interesting thing about sort of creativity working i want to say not really creativity but working in the arts is that you do have to be a bit ruthless to succeed sometimes and you i'm i'm saying you i don't mean you know you personally or or even myself because like i'm obviously not greatly successful but i think maybe you do have to be a bit ruthless and you kind of have to accept that some things are going to be collateral damage if you want to succeed and and maybe that's a drive that you you have to have and and maybe possibly eric and chris have it and jason doesn't and that's why jason's sitting on the sidelines and they're meeting you know spielberg and finishing their movie I think one of the things I did find interesting as well was how they actually managed to to make their original film um, because when the film came out, they didn't have access to it. Um, They'd been to see it in the cinema and um, they had to actually search out an audio recording and merchandise. And I think when I was a kid, that was something else that I identified with because you know, when you went to the movies in the 80s, um, there was maybe a coloring book if you were lucky, but you didn't have loads of merchandise and you didn't have, you know, like we do today, nothing was going to be up on Netflix almost instantly. So you couldn't sort of watch and rewatch these movies. So in a way they were kind of special because once you saw them at the cinema, you didn't really know if you were ever going to be able to see it again. And so maybe that was another thing that spurred them on to do this was um, if you wanted to own sort of, a part of the movie you couldn't just go out and buy all this pre-made merchandise there was like a limited range of it and you kind of maybe did have mm-hmm. to make your own merchandise a bit so yeah yeah and it it was nice to hear jason be so complimentary to who was it was it chris or eric who made the the sketches like the storyboards i think was it, it was eric? i think it was eric yeah that sounds like a, a chris kind of driven thing but it seems but like i know eric, eric did a lot of art didn't he so yeah okay yeah so i mean jason pointed out that you know eric's storyboards were like perfect and they were they were amazing a, so he like i wonder if he had that in his mind as soon as he started watching it to start trying to to put that into his mind to you know to, to draw them as soon as he got home or yeah, like, I mean it's to, quite to, to commit to commit like the angles of the shots to memory and to it's I quite don't know. a feat, isn't it, for kids to do this? I mean, sort of like yeah. whether, whether you think it was a worthwhile project or not. I mean, yeah. what they did it was a huge undertaking, and they did actually do it really well. Yeah. So we have to give them that. Yeah, I do wonder if there's a bit of myth making going on there that 
you know, maybe Eric, Eric also seems like the kind of kid who would go see the movie 12 times and <laughs> meticulously take notes in the back and be known by the usher by his first name telling him to get out and stop shining a light in the back of the theater yeah but yeah. but jason the way jason tells it is he saw the movie once and, and then from there all. he created perfect storyboards <laughs> i think that's something else you do need to have if you're going to succeed sort of like in a in creative industry as you do need to be able to create your own legend a little bit so <laughs> i think well done well done for that one <laughs> All right, terrific. Well, uh, let's wrap this up the way that we always do. So, Jenny, I'd like to invite you to uh, tell me your rating and your MVP from the movie. So, on your own personal Netflix profile, I assume you have one separate from mine. I do, that yeah. Seems, <laughs> yeah that, that seems necessary. We have very, very different tastes in movies, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. His is just Goodfellas on repeat. Just Goodfellas and 12-hour boring films about spies sitting in rooms not talking to each other. <laughs> the kind of film he likes. So oh, golly. yeah, um, I I'd give, so uh, yeah, so it's either a, a thumbs up or a thumbs down. I'd give it then, a tentative thumbs up. A tentative thumbs up. Yeah, <laughs> it's like on a I don't know, like a twenty degree incline. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and then do you have an MVP from the movie? Like, would it be Jason, or is there somebody who really stands out as the the like, star of the project? Or? I think Jason, I is the one I connect with most, but I have to give it to Eric because I feel like he is um, he's not maybe the heart of the the project, but he's the head of the project. Um, and I think without his sort of passion and dedication, like none of it would have happened. So I think I have to give it to Eric and his his many nerdy t shirts. <laughs> Uh, yeah, mine's the same. I'm giving it a thumbs up. If you had asked me halfway through the movie, I would have said thumbs down and that I thought the whole thing was dumb. But <laughs> once the movie started putting together small narrative arcs and uh, and you started to get you started to understand why they were doing what they were doing and you got invested in the project being completed, yeah, I got on board and I ended up feeling a not entirely pure sense of inspiration but it made me feel good that my project you know that this podcast is probably not going to burn anybody to death so (laughs) hopefully not uh and then my mvp was eric as well i felt like unlike jason and chris who seemed like they had something to hide from the camera uh but without me being all that intrigued by it uh, (laughs) eric you actually got a sense of what was at stake for him, uh, what it took for him to get there. It it kind of becomes his movie more than anybody yeah. else's. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the, it holds up well with him at the center of it. So, yeah. Yeah. Eric Zala, you're the, the MVP. Well done, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if they have Google Alerts set up for everything oh, God, related I hope to this not. movie now. <laughs> I do hope not. <laughs> if anybody Sorry, did, who, 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 do you, who do you think it would be? <laughs> Jason, call me. um okay so uh yeah i want to give you an opportunity here to tell me all or tell tell our listeners all about uh your project where we can find it um and all that fun stuff and where we can find you yeah well you can find uh, my new podcast which is the willard price adventure podcast we discussed earlier the sort of horribly inappropriate children's books which i'm talking about with my childhood friend amy muggleston we have a website which is willardpriceadventure.com and you can find us on twitter at willard p underscore pod and then my other podcast which i recorded with my husband mike grasso is the whole shebang which is a minute by minute journey through velvet goldmine the amazing sort of bowie light glam rock rock epic 
And you can find us on Twitter at WholeshebangPod. And then I also have a book I published. Um, it's a young adult science fiction book called Untaken, and you can buy that on Amazon. If, if you can forgive me gushing, I haven't had the chance to check out your new one, but I listened to every episode of The Whole Shebang. I listened to The Whole Shebang, one might even say. Oh, nice. Uh, I see what you did there. Good. <laughs> and uh, if you like the idea of just finding something to talk about in anything in a movie that's dense enough that it, it deserves that kind of scrutiny or uh, at least warrants it I don't know if it deserves <laughs> it does I, deserve. <laughs> uh yeah terrific podcast and I can't wait to check out the new one fantastic thank you so much Dylan for for having me I really enjoyed it oh it's been a, it's been a pleasure thank you so much That's everything for this episode from the Netflix podcast. If you liked what you heard today, head on over to netflix.ca to check out the rest of the Netflix content like show notes, articles, and reviews. Speaking of show notes, the kind of things that you can find there for this episode are a link off to my guest Jenny's young adult novel Untaken on Amazon. Uh, We didn't really talk about any other episodes, which is a bit of a change for me since I usually shamelessly cross-plug, but uh, Jenny did make reference to her husband Mike having been on on Netflix before, so I've linked off to his two episodes. That's number 48, where we talked about Beyond the Black Rainbow, and episode 69, where we talked about the Shining Conspiracy Theory documentary Room 237. I've also added links for either Netflix or Amazon for all the other movies and series that we talked about, like Fifty Shades of Grey, Best Worst Movie, Bojack Horseman, Confessions of a Superhero, Dune, Yudorovsky's Dune, Lost Soul, The Doom Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Raiders of the Lost Ark The Adaptation, which is the movie that the kids made that this documentary got made about, And, of course, this documentary, Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made, The Island of Dr. Moreau, and Velvet Goldmine. You can find Netflix on all sorts of social media platforms. We're on Facebook as Netflix, on Twitter at NetflixPod, where you can also find me at Dylan Clark Moore, and we're on SoundCloud as Netflix Podcast. You can find me on Letterboxd as Dylan Clark Moore. If you'd like to support the show, there are a few ways you can do so. You can start by heading over to iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast platform you prefer, and subscribing so that each new episode comes straight to you. While you're there, you can drop a rating and a review to let us know what you think. Even more importantly, be sure to tell your friends about what we're doing here. You can also contribute directly to this project by way of our Patreon campaign. Whether it's for the rewards or just to see us keep doing what we're doing, you can pledge your support over at patreon.com. This podcast is produced and edited by me, Dylan Clark Moore, and the theme music was provided by Zach Moore. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of the Netflix podcast, and be sure to join me here next time for a whole new conversation about a whole new movie from the Netflix catalog. Because even if you think you've seen it all, you ain't streamed nothing yet.